All right. The uh, sermon text reading is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, I, I want to tell you about a crazy dream I had last night. <laughs> My wife's like, be like, what are we going to get here? So... Um, I had a dream that, that I was handed an envelope for, with $1.5 million in it, and uh, there were three people that I had determined I was going to give the money to, two of which are actually here at the church. Uh, Mike, I don't know where Mike is. Um, Mike's just glad I didn't kill him in my dream, because I have a lot of dreams where I kill people. Uh, I'm always the hero, by the way, just so you know. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a hero. But um, I'm a hero. But it was, it was Mike and then MC. And then I had a, a roommate from college. I have no idea why, but they were in my, so three people. And then I realized, wait a minute, if I'm going to give them a half million, I didn't do the math right here. There's nothing for me. And so it was, you know, dreams are just crazy, right? And so I'm in the dream and I'm, and then I'm starting to, you know, rationalize and justify. I was like, wait a minute, I don't know that I actually told them I'd give them a half million. And so I was like, what if I just give them 10000 They don't know any better. I, they don't know that I've said I'm going to give them a half million. So by the end of the dream, I've determined that I actually didn't tell them I'd give them a half million, and I was going to keep the rest for myself. And then I woke up, and I was like, oh, it's just a crazy dream, right? And we all had those dreams that make no sense, or you go off and you kill people, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, but, but what if you had a dream that was more than a dream? You know, what if you woke up and you said, I'm not crazy, I'm clear. That's what we're talking about today. What if? It's more than a dream. It's more like a vision, actually. You know, we've been in the series, uh, for those of you who are brand new, uh, called The Family of Jesus. And we started with the genealogy last week. And now we're talking about Joseph. Next week, by the way, Mary. Mary's going to get her due here next week. Uh, but today, Joseph. And what we're going to see today is we're going we're to learn a lot about a father. But in the process of learning about a father, Joseph, we're going to learn about the father and his plans. We're going to see that his plans uh, weren't just for Joseph. They just weren't for for that time. They're for us as well. Because 2,000 years ago, it was a world in chaos. And you say, boy, that sounds like our world, right? I mean, a lot of people, by the way, just so you know, think that the world is in chaos more than it's ever been before. And actually, I don't think that's true. I think we're just more aware of the actual chaos around the world. There's always been chaos. We're just more aware. But 2,000 years ago, in addition to wars and famines and pestilence and things like that, the father saw that there was spiritual chaos. And he responded by doing something about it. And that's what the story's about. 
I mean, the whole, the whole Christmas story is about his response, but, but that's what this particular story is also about this morning. So here's what I want for us. I, I want us to see that, that how God responds to chaos is actually a challenge to us as well. What will we do when our plans get thwarted? What happens to us? And so this morning, three things. First, uh, we're going to look at the courage of a father. Second, we're going we're to look at the plan of the father. And then lastly, we're going to ask the question, because of the strength of the son, what difference does it make for our lives? So the courage of a husband, the plan of a father, then the strength of the son. So let's look at the first one here. Courage of a husband, verse 18, is where we start, of course. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I've heard this before, betrothal. What in the world is that? Is that like engagement? Well, sort of, but not, not quite. So in the ancient world, you would have had arranged marriages, okay? Now, I will, I will tell you this. I'm just going to go on record here. I used to poo-poo arranged marriage, right? And then I had teenage daughters, so, Camille, I want you to just cover your ears right now, okay? If any of you want to talk about arrangement here, um, I'm willing to, to have that conversation. You know, I'm, to, I'm telling you, man. I mean, would you become a parent? Am I right? Teenage parents, like, there's something about it. You're like, I want the best for my child. So this is what was happening in, in little Nazareth. So uh, Mary's family's looking around saying, Joseph's family, I'm not bad. And Joseph's a carpenter. We get free carpentry services for life. And so not a bad deal. What does Joseph's family get returned? They get a teenager. You know, 14 years old probably is how old Mary was. Probably something around then. Now, to be fair, Joseph was probably a teenager as well. But by then you're in your career. And so, you know, Joseph the carpenter and little Mary. And so there's this arranged marriage. And so in the ancient world, there was a time called betrothal. Now, now it's sort of like engagement, right? So you can be engaged in most... Couples, of course, do that before they get married for some length of time, six months, maybe a year, something like that. But in the ancient world, it was a legally binding document that you're uh, like a covenant that you're entering into. Uh, like what we see is marriage almost. It's the same thing. There's a ceremony, and, and it was one year long. And, and it was like marriage, but without the benefits of marriage, if you know what I mean. Like it, you can't come together. You had to live separately. But you're considered husband and wife, believe it or not. And so there's this arranged situation. So that's what we're stepping into. Now, the other thing I should tell you about uh, Nazareth is just like the surrounding towns, it was an honor-shame culture. And as such, there was a very consistent morality. There was a very consistent value system that everyone adhered to. And if you broke with tradition, if you broke with morality, very publicly you could be shamed. Very publicly you could be humiliated. So that's our story this morning. That's the context for our story is that, that Mary has just received word. Now, can you imagine how that conversation with Joseph went? Again, remember next week we're going to talk about Mary, but we're, we're talking about Joseph today. And so can you imagine Joseph has puts down his, his hammer, you know, and Mary comes up to him and says, Hey, Joseph, I got to tell you something. Sure, babe. What's up? I'm, I'm pregnant. And, uh, you know, but, but before you, you jump to conclusions here, just know that I'm still a virgin and, and it was the Holy Spirit who done it, kind of thing like that. And now, you know, I want to take a step back here just for a second. We are so used to the Christmas story. We take that for granted, don't we? 
We were just like, oh, we're going to hear all the great story in the reading. We're going to have live nativity here on Christmas Eve. It's going to be awesome. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of those who are in the midst of the drama today. Let's put ourselves in the midst of the storyline. You need to know this. No one was expecting a virgin birth. Okay? Let's just be really clear about that. We take it for granted. They did not. So when Joseph hears from Mary, was visited by an angel. I was told I'm pregnant. It's the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't say, oh, thanks be to God. I've been waiting for this. You know, I've been studying the scriptures, and yeah, this is, you know, I was just waiting for this, and I can't believe it. It's happening right now. No, of course not. Joseph was like, what the? You know, I mean, he was like, no, this is impossible. Like, like, you know, it's very clear what really happened here. Now, I don't know if it was forcible or you wanted it, but it's very clear what happened here. Now, how will Joseph respond? That's the question. Remember, honor and shame culture. Now, remember, it's, you know, of course, Mary's experiencing this. She's a teenager who's unwed, and she's pregnant. But listen, today, I want you to enter into his shame. I want you to enter, enter into his humiliation. Because it was just as much his as hers. And so, with that in mind, let's see how Joseph responds. Verse 19. And by the way, maybe before I... Let me, let me just share this with you first. Uh, this is a quote from Brene Brown. Uh, some of you know her, the gift of imperfections, fantastic speaker and writer. And she says this about shame. I, I think about Mary and Joseph when I think about this quote. Shame works like the zoom lens on a camera. When we are feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight. And all we see is our flawed selves alone and struggling. You know, in, in, in a shame culture, it's not only you who see that, everyone else sees that as well. So with that in mind, now, how does Joseph respond? Verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There is so much in here for us. We just, it'd be so easy to just keep going, but there's so much here. A couple things. Number one, he's just. What does that mean that he's just? Well, in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world, it meant that he was faithful to the law. That's what that meant. It meant he was righteous in that sense, morally righteous. He was an upstanding citizen with a wonderful reputation there in little old Nazareth. Now, because he was righteous, because he was just, and because clearly he's not looking for the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the text here. Like, uh, it's very clear that he wasn't expecting that, which is why it says next that he will divorce her. So I want you to understand this, that because there's no way in his worldview that what Mary said to him actually was the reality, it makes sense that it was adultery. And if he's a just, righteous man, the only proper response in that culture was to divorce her. Now, again, remember, this is betrothal, not marriage in that sense, but still, remember, legally binding, and so divorce was actually something that could happen in those situations. So his response is to properly divorce her, so to speak. But I want you to see something else here. What does it say about how he divorces her, or will divorce her? Remember, in this mind, this hasn't happened yet, but what will he do here? It says, unwilling to put her to shame. He will divorce her how? Now, that is unusual for that day and age. Not only is he just, Joseph is merciful. He is compassionate, actually. I mean, again, remember, this, he's humiliated. 
He's, he's full of shame. His dreams, his 17-year-old dreams have been shattered for what life looks like in an incredibly traditional culture. They have been absolutely shattered. But And, and what would have happened, what often did happen, friends, is, is that he would have distanced himself from Mary and very publicly would have said, it was her. I had nothing to do with it. You know, so I've, you know, I'm going to let the whole village know so that I can get re-betrothed, let's say. <laughs> like I, there's still a future for me. Mary, not so much. But for me, there is a future here. But what does he do instead? It says, being filled with compassion, unwilling to put her to shame. This young man looks at Mary, and despite her perceived flaws and immorality, filled with mercy, filled with compassion. The reason why I share that with you now is because I think for most of us, we're going to go home today. We're going to go back to our homes, and there's going to be this little nativity scene set up in front of a fireplace or somewhere in your house, and you're going to see this little wooden figurine named Joseph. And for most of us in the Christmas season, Joseph remains wooden. And today, I want to bring him to life for you. I want you to see that he's three-dimensional. He's not a cardboard cutout made of wood, but a man full of compassion, a man full of courage beyond anything we could possibly conceive in our own world, it would seem. Joseph is remarkable of a character, and we so easily miss him in this Christmas story. And yes, it's true. He won't be around long. He flees to Egypt to escape uh, bad King Herod, of course. And, and then we see him again when Jesus is 12 years old. They lose sight of, as we all do as parents, lose sight of her kids at the mall, that sort of thing. And that's what happens essentially in the ancient mall. And they lose sight of him. And, uh, but then after that, Joseph disappears from the store, never to be seen again. Most people think that he probably died shortly thereafter. We never, ever hear about him again. But dare we not miss him today? Joseph, a remarkable man of courage. Joseph, a remarkable man of compassion. And, and we know from verse 24, don't we, that, that in his response, as we're going to see in a second, his response is, yes, I will take on humiliation. See, when we look at that verse there, and we'll do that in a second, you know, it says, oh, yeah, he, he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll take her as my wife. Here, he was, he was embracing humiliation. I want you to make sure you understand that. In a shame and honor culture, Joseph is embracing humiliation. He is embracing shame to cover hers. Now that's so important. We're going to come back to that. But I, I, I want you to, to see this character. I want him to, to be alive to you today. Because of what happens next year. And that is, we see the courage of a husband, but now we're going to see the plan of a father. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were here last week, you again did the genealogy, and you remember that the, the messianic prophecy from the Old Testament was that Jesus the Messiah, that is, would come through the line of David. So we come to the end of the genealogy. Remember, in the last thing, who was the last person in the genealogy? It was Joseph, remember? It was Joseph. So now we're, we're set up for verse 18. Now we're set up for, for Joseph to become the father of Jesus. But what happens? 
Joseph is determined. He decides, um, no, it's not going to happen. In other words, what's happening here, and this is the reason why, by the way, it says Joseph, son of David. Matthew's helping us connect, really, the angel. But, uh, but Matthew's helping us connect that, that the genealogy is about to come true, or at least its intention, the conflict here. And I, but what I don't want you to have tension with right now is the fact that right now, if we didn't know any better, right now it looks like the, the prophecy, the whole thing around the Messiah is about to not be fulfilled. Why? Because remember, because the Messiah must come through the family of Joseph, if Joseph does what? Divorces her. Now remember, you know, they haven't been together yet. And it's not that kind of divorce. So in other words, that, they're, that he's not going to adopt this new child whose name is Jesus. Can you see what's being threatened here? Christmas itself, as it were. The whole story of salvation is being thwarted, as it were. Now, it's fascinating to me that when we see God in the Scriptures, sometimes he lets things just go by the wayside. I think about the disciples, for instance. For three and a half years, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. At least not the kind of Messiah that he actually is, right? And for three and a half years, they deny him, get behind me, Satan, Peter, you know, those kinds of things. Um, let's call down fire from heaven on our enemies. Can we do that, says one of the Zealot brothers. Those sorts of things. So for three and a half years, Jesus puts up with it and God the Father puts up with it. And he allows it to kind of play out here, but not here. Not Joseph, as soon as he starts considering this, God steps in here. I love what Proverbs Chapter 21, verse 30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Don't you see? Don't you see? Joseph is told by Mary, Mary, or Joseph, I'm pregnant. Uh, it's from the Holy Spirit, and there's no way in the world that, that, that Joseph was connecting the dots. When did he connect the dots? When he had a visit in a dream. And like I said, we don't know if it was like nighttime, was it a siesta? Was it something else? Was it a vision? We're not quite, vision dreams are kind of one and the same often in the scripture. We're not quite sure, but there's no doubt that when he wakes up, he is crystal clear that he's that the veil between heaven and earth has been rent into, and that he has experienced something from God that he trusted by faith as being true. And now he sees that what Mary said is true, connecting the dots for the first time. Here's what I want you to see in that. Number one. God is sovereign. Okay? God sits on his throne. When the world is in chaos, God sits on his throne. Right now, the world is in chaos. It's, some for you say, it's in chaos in my home. Forget about Israel. Forget about the Ukraine. It's in my home. Okay? So, but whatever it is, like God sits on his throne is what the Scriptures say over and over and over again. And it's easy to look at the Scriptures and say, oh yeah, those stories from the past, thousands of you with kings and queens and militaries and armies and so forth. No, He's sovereign for you as well. He's sovereign in your home. He's sovereign over, over your uh, family, over your career, over your marriage, over your singleness, over your friendships. He, he is that sort of Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords, the Scriptures say, over and over and over again. And so he is determined as a result to fulfill his mission of love into the world. Which brings us to verses 22 and 23, which is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 7. Now let me read to you verses 22 and 23 first. All this took place to to fulfill, so here's the sovereignty of the Lord, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, this being Isaiah. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, I don't have time to get into the the original context of what's happening in Isaiah chapter 7. It's pretty crazy, by the way. Okay? And here's the point. Matthew is the only one, the only one, who sees that that prophecy from Isaiah is connected to Jesus. And that's why we have it today, and that's why it's so front and center in our Christmas story. No one was looking for it. There were lots of other prophecies that were a lot more dominant, a lot more obvious, we might say. This was not one of them. And it's Matthew, the one who sort of connects the dots here. But, but what I, in particular I want you to see here is that God in His sovereignty is doing new creation. Now, here's what I mean by that. Twice here in this passage, it mentions the Holy Spirit doing the work of conception here. Now, remember what I said last week, if you were here. I said that each of the gospel writers has a Genesis story. So remember I mentioned last week, uh, the gospel of John, how's it begin? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, was it echoing? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, right? And remember, I said last week, how does Matthew begin? Which is where we began, right? Genealogy, etymology of genealogy is the same as Genesis. It's about birth, in, the case, in this case, new birth. And what does it say here? Holy Spirit. Now remember, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. But do you know what verse 2 of Genesis 1 is? It says there was darkness, chaos, And what does it say? The Spirit of God hovered over the chaos. The Spirit of God was about to act. And in this story, Matthew says, the Spirit of God hovered over Mary. And in His sovereignty, He was going to bring order to the chaos. The chaos of spirituality. The chaos of spiritual darkness. And he was going to bring order through Jesus. Now, what does this name mean? Here's where the challenge, I think, for us comes, by the way. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. People are hungry and thirsty for salvation. It's not just something when you're religious in an ancient culture. People want salvation today. Now, it may not be religious. It may not be capital G, God, that sort of thing. But all of us are looking for a rescue. And what does verse 21 say? Jesus, his name means you can't rescue yourself. Think about that. It means he who must rescue you from your sin. What does that mean? Well, another way to put that, I think, is that he rescues us from our plans. Now, Joseph had a set of plans, right? <laughs> Joseph had a set of plans. It, it was going uh, to rescue him from from what his current humiliation was. It was bad enough, but, you know, who wants more? No one wants more naturally. And so he's going to divorce her. He's going to be rescued from the situation. And, and what does the Lord say? The Lord says, no, I have a different plan for you. And it's going to mean that you're going to have to embrace more humiliation. It means that you're going to have to embrace and trust that, that my plans for you, is, is, as strange as, and as awkward as they are, Joseph, they're for you good, for your good. And not only for your good, it's for the world's good. That's the, that's the story of Jesus' name, after all. And I, I, that's where I want to kind of slow down for a second. And I want to say this to you. Do you ever feel like your plans are being thwarted? And, and, and maybe another way to put it would be, um, are you open to having your plans thwarted? I will tell you that, uh, you know, despite the fact that, I, you know, 23 amazing years with my wife and three beautiful daughters and all and planning a church and 
and seeing it grow. And, and here we are 17 years later. I mean, there's so much good. But I can tell you, uh, season after season, I've watched my plans get thwarted. You know, here's one plan I had. When I came back from sabbatical last summer, I came out with new energy, new vision, excitement for the future. And part of that was, man, like, let's look to plant a church on the south side, south of 20. And, like, it was a session. We started talking about that as, we, as, uh, as 23, uh, 22 became 23 in January. And we had a retreat, and we, it was part of what we were talking about. And then we cratered financially around here. And I found myself saying, God, what gives? You know, and some of you, I've shared the story. Like, I mean, even, even our fertility process all those years ago, before we had our oldest daughter, Karis, uh, like, our plans were thwarted. And I, I didn't respond the way that Joseph did on the other side of being visited by the angel. I mean, just to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, I could make a sailor blush in my response to God in the midst of that. I was enraged. There have been a couple times in my life where I've been enraged at God. Not angry, I got enraged. It is really easy, friends. It is really easy as devout Christians and believers and followers of Jesus. It is really easy to see our plans thwarted, and our response to those thwarted plans is telling. It tells us where our character currently is. And, and God, because He's gracious and merciful, when we become enraged, when we, when we think unkindly about the character of God, and he responds with grace and mercy towards us. He certainly has towards me. But my point in telling you all that is to say, let's not miss the story of incredible courage and compassion and, and, and think about what would we do in those shoes? What do we do today in those shoes when our plans are thwarted? Here at Advent, you have plans for your families, for your careers, for your marriage, for your singleness. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? We have dreams. We, we, we have longings and, and hopes and hungers and expectations, just like Joseph did, just like Mary did, just like we do. So I... Before I, uh, we move on here to the last section, I just want to hold that with you and ask you to hold that here at Advent. Just think, what are my plans? And, and as, I, as I prepare for Christmas Eve and as I look at that little nativity scene and as I watch the wise man and the shepherds bow down and surrender, as I look at that scene over again, do I find myself there as well? Able to say, Jesus... Emmanuel, I lay before you my plans. I surrender those to you here at your birth. But it brings us here to the last thing, and that is see the strength of a son here. I mentioned towards the beginning that I wanted to come back to something here. The name Jesus, by the way, is incredibly common. <laughs> be like Peter, Michael, something like that. It's just an incredibly common name. Now, for most parents who are naming their kid Jesus, it's hopeful expectation. But, you know, it's like, look, we're looking forward to a Messiah to come. And so who can save us from the sin? So this is our messianic expectation. So we name our kid because we're, we're longing for hope in the world. Only Joseph and Mary could say, yeah, he actually is here. And he actually is the hope of the world. That's what's going on here. But he's, it's a common name, but it's an uncommon result. 
And here's what I find so fascinating and so uncommon. How does he fulfill his name? Because in the ancient world, you weren't named because they sent the, like the, the sound of it. You were named because there's a hope that you would fulfill it, that somehow in your name there would be meaning, more meaning given into the world. And so the question is, how does Jesus, Yeshua, by the way, Joshua elsewhere, how does he fulfill it? Who was Jesus? Matthew tells us as the gospel continues. He was just. He was perfect. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was just, he was righteous, but was also merciful. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. Don't you see? Jesus was the ultimate one who took humiliation, who took our shame. Joseph is, in, is, is, is commanded to embrace humiliation, but it was temporary. And Jesus took not only Mary's humiliation, but the world's humiliation upon himself. He took their shame. And that's what I want you to see this morning, is the strength of the Son. The one who, who was more than a teaching model for moral behavior in the universe. Something like that. No, this, this little child born into the manger is Jesus, the one who takes away the sin of the world. The one, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today, he's already done that. But then there's a second name given to us in this passage. Did you notice that? It's in the Isaiah prophecy. He will be Emmanuel. What does it mean that he's Emmanuel? Literally, it means God with us, which means that Jesus wasn't simply born to save us from our sin, but to be with us. Do you know how Matthew's gospel actually ends? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. The very last words here. How's it end? It ends this way. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus will take away our sins at the very end of the gospel. Emmanuel. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here's what that means in closing. It means if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you need to know this. Christ has taken away your sin. Jesus has fulfilled his name. He's taken away your sin. He has done that, but he is with you in the present. Which means that, that when you're facing a plan that's being thwarted, you're not alone. It's not just that you're not alone because you're surrounded by people that can say, I've been there, empathy. But that Jesus himself empathizes with you. He himself, he said to the Father on the night that he was crucified, he said, yet not my will, but yours. Going through excruciating pain, already beginning to suffer, knowing what was to come, literally, hell itself to bear down upon his soul and his body. And he says, yet not my will, yours, your plan. I surrender. So may the Lord give you courage. May he give you compassion. May you be just and merciful as fathers and as mothers, as children, as employers, as employees, as neighbors. May you be just. May you be merciful. May people see Christmas in you, in other words. May they see the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we are so glad that you thwarted a plan.